Welcome to The Institute, a podcast on the lives and work of fellows and friends of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Sophia Ramos. In this episode, Philip Hollingsworth speaks with biology professor David Finnig. In their conversation, Professor Finnig discusses the role of environmental factors on evolution through the study of amphibians. Are you teaching this semester? I am. I'm Can you teaching. talk about what courses you're teaching? So I'm, I'm teaching one class. I'm teaching a cl- an honors class on evolution and development. So it's a, um, a small class. There are only 10 students in it this semester. Oh, wow. The record for the smallest. It's usually, usually it's, um, you know, 15 to 20 students in there. What do you focus on in the course? Um, or, like, what are you guys working on right now? Yeah, so. It's near the end of the um, semester. But. Yeah, it is. So this week we're talking about human evolution, mm-hmm. um, and so that's something I added just relatively recently because you know students are always interested in humans. Um, and so the way the way we structure the class is that on Tuesdays I will lecture on something, and then that Thursday we have student-led discussions. So okay. there'll be a team of typically two students that'll lead a discussion of uh, papers from the current literature, you know, and, mm-hmm. and then the other students. Um, submit questions at a time and then um, I try to keep as quiet as possible which is really hard for me yeah and while they have a discussion you know while they they go at it and so the, the students typically that's the favorite part of the class for them is these student discussions yeah have you had any surprising or really invigorating discussions this semester we've had well every semester there's always surprising and invigorating discussions and I'm, I'm usually sitting in the background writing down thoughts <laughs> that's a really good idea you yeah, know somebody yeah, should yeah. pursue that so um yeah, so like one really cool thing that came out this semester is that a student in there, so we were talking about, so one of the sort of new discoveries in this field of evolution and development is that most organisms are, most multicellular organisms like humans, right? Um, typically consists of actually many different organisms. So we think yeah. about, you know, when I'm looking at you, I'm thinking I'm seeing humans, right? Yeah. But a lot of the, a lot of what I'm seeing is not Philip, but I'm seeing other things. So principally bacteria, right? So especially right. in your gut, you've probably heard this. Yeah. That, I mean, there's some debate about, for a while people were saying for every human cell there were 100 bacterial cells. Mm-hmm. It turns out it's probably not quite that high, but we're not really sure. But anyway, so we were talking about uh, this this general subject, and so one of the papers I had them read was the um, was was the, the idea that, you know, you get a lot of your early, uh, what's called the microbiome, you get that from your mother during oh, okay. birth. Yeah, yeah. And, so what, so what they're discovering is that, the people who study this, is that people who were delivered vaginally have a different microbiome for a good portion of their life than those that were delivered through cesarean. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and it's thought that this could have consequences for um, health, you know, later on in life. Um, certainly, we know that, it, that the microbiome differs for those individuals, and it might differ in ways that affect their health. And so we were talking about this, and the students were going on about how, you know, how you would test this, and I was pointing out, well, you can't really do experiments with humans, you know, yeah, and yeah. of course, like you can with other organisms. And it turns out there's a guy in the class who says, I'm an identical twin. Oh. I was born vaginally. My twin, and I don't know the reason, had to yeah. be delivered through cesarean a few minutes later. And uh-huh. we realized there is a amazing <laughs> experimental control that you have there where you and your twin could submit yourself for, and surely there must have been other people that, were, that had this happen. Yeah, he, yeah. He's actually working in a lab at the medical school. And I said, 
you know, you should go find somebody in the medical school and tell them about this. Because I haven't read that somebody had thought about doing that control, you know, where you have two right. individuals that are genetically identical, but they'd experienced different environmental circumstances early in life in ways that could affect this microbiome. And wow. so that was a really cool idea, I thought, that came That's out great. of class. That's great. So in general, could you talk about your research focus and what you do um, as a scholar here at, at the university? Yeah, so um, my interests are broadly in evolutionary biology. And, um, you know, but I'm, I'm, I'm one of those people who's just interested in all kinds of things, not just biology, but mm -hmm. my... Um, uh, my undergraduate uh, time, I ended up getting two degrees, one in zoology and one in geology. Um, and, uh, you know, because I couldn't sort of decide which uh, topic I wanted to specialize on. Evolutionary biology sort of appeals to me because it's, it's sort of an integrative and very synthetic field, you know. So it draws on certainly all areas of biology, but mm -hmm. it, it draws on other fields outside biology like uh, like geology, but also in fields like anthropology and, of course, physics and chemistry, the more basic sciences. And increasingly, it's drawing a lot on things like mathematics and computer science and topics like that. And for some people, you know, they might be interested in things like economics or sociology and, uh, yeah. and, and all sorts of uh, political science topics like that. So most of my work these days uh, within uh, the field of evolutionary biology is focusing on a problem that's fascinated me since I was a kid, which is that um, what role does the environment play in determining or in influencing the features that an organism mm -hmm. expresses later on in its life? And given that we know that, you know, most organisms, the environment can influence uh, the features they express, what are the consequences of that for evolution? And yeah. so, um, you know, evolution is built up in the last half century is a very much a gene-centric uh, field, you know, where, where um, all that matters is the, is the transmission of genes, you know, in the next yeah. generation. And that's, that's really the way the field has developed, um, as I said, really for the last half century, a little bit longer, actually. And, and it's really one of the last frontiers in biology or fields in biology that still is that way. I mean, if you go into medical school, you know, a lot of people over there are studying um, you know, how the environment can influence individuals and how that affects uh, susceptible to disease and things like that. And so this general topic of, uh, of how the, an organism's environment can influence its traits is something called developmental plasticity, and that's the topic that I'm really interested in studying. So it's called developmental plasticity for obvious reasons because what, what it gets at is this idea that development is not fixed, it's not determined by your genes are by the genes in any individual organism. Yeah. But in many cases, individuals that have identical genomes can produce very different features, different morphologies, different behaviors, different physiologies, depending upon their environmental circumstances. And so the, the kinds of questions that I'm interested in understanding are, um, how does that process work? Um, how does it evolve in the first place? So why does it evolve? So what are the benefits for being flexible that way? Mm -hmm. uh, but also, how does it in turn influence evolution? So does it impede evolution? Does it speed evolution up? Or does it have no influence on evolution at all? And so, um, you know, these really, these questions really get at sort of how we view things like evolution, but also how we, you know, how we understand how variation arises, you know, because that's a you know, that's a distinctive characteristic of all living things is that they vary, right? No, yeah, yeah. There's no species on Earth that 
um, where everybody's identical in mm-hmm. all their traits. And so how does that variation arise? But also it gets at really fundamental questions about how inheritance works. So given that you have variation, how does that, how do those distinctive characteristics then get passed on to the next generation? And so, um, again, traditionally we sort of viewed this as very much sort of a gene-centric process. That, yeah. You know, if you ask the, the typical person, typical scientist, but of course even the typical person in the street, and you would say, well, why does your daughter look like you? You know, mm-hmm. and they would say, well, they inherited my genes. Now we know that's clearly part of the answer, but yeah. We're understanding that a good part of that could also be that they share environments as well. And oh, so wow. that, that's, that's yeah. sort of the general questions that we're interested hmm. in. So I kind of have a nuts and bolts question regarding your research. So you have these questions about environmental factors in terms of like evolution or variation and these things. But how do you go about testing these or, or, or finding the answers to these yeah, questions? Yeah, well, that, that's a, so that's an, that's a great yeah. question, right? And, um, and, and the fact that it's you, – what your question gets at is why this has been hard to study for yeah. most people. Because for the last several decades, um, biology has built up around the idea that you study a limited number of organisms mm-hmm. that we refer to as model organisms – and you, you study those organisms and you, you infer things about other organisms for what you find in those organisms. So, okay. for instance, a lot of research on that the National Institutes of Health is funding, that taxpayers are funding for billions of dollars, is not on humans, but it's on things like fruit flies, <clears throat> on, um, on nematode worms, and, and even yeast, things like that. Okay. And the reason we can do that is because one of the great discoveries that's been made um, – about 40 years ago in this broad field that I work in called evolution and development, sometimes shortened as EvoDevo, mm-hmm. is that all organisms actually share a common uh, set of genes and developmental pathways that are highly what we refer to as being highly conserved. So we share lots of genes and developmental pathways with things like fruit flies and with worms and even with yeast. Okay. And so what that means is that we can study those kinds of organisms and make inferences about you know, what's happening in humans. Mm-hmm. Now, the down, so that's been great, and that's yeah. been very revolutionary. The downside of that approach, though, is that by restricting to these few organisms, we, we tend to, I think, have a biased view of how development and how evolution really works because we tend to focus on these few model organisms which were selected on the basis of, the, of not showing much sensitivity to the environment. And the reason for that is that you, you want to... If I'm going to work on some organism, and let's say I'm here in North Carolina, and let's say you're in China, and we want to collaborate, and we yeah. want to compare our results, that we, we want to make sure we're studying an organism where, okay, maybe my environmental chamber is a little bit different. It's a little bit off the temperature, let's say, than what yours is. Yeah. So we don't want organisms that are really sensitive to changes in the environment. And okay. so that's given us the misimpression that, you know, that the environment doesn't play an important role in I development see. or evolution. Yeah. So one of the ways that I'm trying to approach this general question about how the environment influences an organism's features and how that impacts evolution, or if it does impact evolution, is by looking at organisms in a more natural context. And so one of the sort of common unifying themes of the work in my lab is to focus on on organisms in as natural an environment as possible. And so we tend to work on non-model organisms. Most of the work is with amphibians. Wow. And, you know, a lot of our work is being done in the lab where we have more control, 
But we are studying an organism or a group of organisms where we can also go out into nature and we can understand what they experience in their natural environment. And so that helps us make sense of what kinds of things in the environment might be important to them. And it helps us to understand why we find what we find in the lab, you know. And so oh, okay. that, that's, that's one way of doing it. But, but basically, it's like everything in, in sort of historical fields, like evolutionary biology, mm-hmm. And this is obviously not just true in, in sciences, but it's in true in, in things like the you know history and so forth. Is you yeah. really have to act as a detective, right? And so you yeah. have to piece the, the the you have to piece the clues together and infer what might have happened in the past based on what you observe in present day. Um, and so that's a lot of what we're doing is we're we're sort of taking the role of the detective right. and inferring how this you know how how evolution might have happened millions of years ago. In some cases, maybe hundreds of millions of years yeah. ago. So why why did you choose amphibians for this particular so study? part of it frankly is that I just you know I was I was I've always been fascinated by reptiles and amphibians okay. since I was a kid right yeah. and so one reason why people probably pick the things that they study is probably goes back to childhood right yeah, and yeah. so you know like a lot of kids I was really fascinated by things like dinosaurs and snakes and stuff like that but mm-hmm. I chose not to study dinosaurs um, because they're not alive anymore except for birds. I mean, there's one group that's still with us. Um, And, you know, snakes are kind of hard to study and for various reasons. So amphibians have a lot of things that make them really good for experiments. For one thing, they have external, many amphibians, the the frogs that we study, they have external fertilization, which means that you know exactly who the dad is. So you don't, there's not, it's not like hidden inside the female like it is, say, in mammals or, you know, humans, for instance. They have lots and lots of young. So a mm-hmm. single female, from depending on the species that we're studying, might produce 2,000 eggs, you know, and so wow. it gives us lots yeah. of babies to work with. Okay. Um, they, But the main reason I study the particular group of amphibians that I do, so I study a, a, a group called the spadefoot toads. Uh, they're not actually true toads. They're actually frogs, but they're okay. called toads because they live. What is the difference between a frog and a toad? Sorry. There, there is no, so there is, the, <laughs> there is no formal difference between a frog and a toad other okay. than toads tend to be frogs that live on land, and frogs are frogs oh, okay. that mostly okay. live in water. Um, my son was asking me that. Was yeah. Like, oh, there, no. there is a, so there is a group of of there is a group that are called the true toads. They used to be in the genus Bufo, okay. um, and they, they have certain defining characteristics, but they're actually other things. We call these guys that we study, for instance, spadefoot toads. We have one of these here in North Carolina because they're mostly found in dry areas. And oh, they, okay. yeah. they only go into water to lay their eggs, mm. and that's the, only, that's the only time they're in water. But anyway, the, the reason that – and I've been studying these for, you know, really got, got fascinated by them as a kid – is that they display a really spectacular example of this phenomenon that I was talking about earlier called developmental plasticity. Mm-hmm. So their tadpoles will produce radically different forms, and they're radically different in their behavior and their development depending upon their environment. And okay. you, can get, you can get incredibly different forms being produced from a single clutch. You know, they give you mm-hmm. brothers and sisters to each other. And in this case, it depends on what they ate. So wow. if they... If they if they grow up feeding on just plant material and detritus, so decaying material, they'll develop in, into what we call the omnivore morph. And this is just sort of a – it wouldn't surprise you if you saw one of these guys. They look like the kinds of tadpoles you would find anywhere in the world. They're just yeah. sort of a football shape with a tail on it. Yeah, yeah. They just live in groups. They, they, they move around slowly. They develop sort of slowly. In the same population, though, if an individual eats – meat early in its life. So another tadpole or fairy mm-hmm. shrimp, which you often have in the ponds where these guys occur, 
they might develop depending upon, and again, this is where it gets complicated. It's not just the environment, it's their genes too. So it's yeah. always an interaction. Yeah, so yeah. depending upon the genes they have, they not, might develop into this really different form. So they develop a really big head. Mm. They develop um, sort of a keratinized mouth parts that, that looks like a hawk's bill from front on. Their gut gets really short and they become really aggressive. So when you see these in the ponds, they're like just zipping around like little sharks. And oh, wow. so th th we study these because it's, again, it's a really extreme example of this sort of plasticity, mm -hmm. this plasticity that can happen in development where you're, where you're, um, where your forms are, are, are altered. So when these guys were first described, you know, uh, 100 years ago by, by, by uh, herpetologists, these are people who study frogs and toads and reptiles, they thought they were completely different species. Oh, okay. you know, so yeah, they're yeah, so yeah. different, they didn't realize they were the, actually the same huh. species. And again, not only is it the same species, but it could even be from the same family, you know, the same yeah. genome basically producing. So. A lot of times, you know, in, in science, if you want to study a phenomenon, you pick a really extreme example of that phenomenon mm -hmm. that allows you to really explore that, that, that phenomenon, whatever it is, yeah. in, in great detail. And that's really what we're doing here. So that's why we pick on frogs. That's great. Oh, thanks for that. That's, <clears throat> that's fascinating. Yeah, so this is a question we ask all our guests. What's a book that changed your life? A book that changed my life was probably um, The Selfish Gene by Richard Dawkins, um, published in 1976. And I ran across that as an undergrad. Okay. Um, actually, no, I guess I just finished up my undergrad and I was just starting uh, graduate school or thinking about graduate school. And it, it really it captivated me because what Dawkins did in that book was he sort of laid out a different way of viewing evolution mm -hmm. that evolution can be thought of as a process that favors genes, that favors genes that are good at propagating themselves and not necessarily the organisms that carry those genes, right? And so mm, okay. it, 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 it wasn't a, an idea that was unique to him. He was really using the book as a way of explaining some uh, scientific discoveries that other scientists had made, and he was basically popularizing it. But it, it, it really sort of changed my view of how evolution worked, you know, and so mm -hmm. I sort of had, it, it just got me thinking, to use the cliche, outside the box, you know, in evolution, and just, just appreciating what a, you know, sort of vibrant and what an exciting field it was. And, um, I mean, as it turns out, I still like the book a lot. I think that some of what he said in there, I now think he was probably wrong about it, yeah. you know, and, um, but that's okay. I mean, right. again, that's yeah. the way science works, is that uh -huh. you, you just sort of build on ideas, and it's, it's more of how those ideas get you thinking in a different way. And, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that was, probably, that was probably one of the influential books for me. Great. Well, thank you very much for your time. Mm -hmm. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Check back at iah.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website, as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at IAH underscore UNC.